The idea of the filter is this, this notion of something that comes between you and the world that you see, and it changes how you see the world. For example, the filters can be kind of fun. Here's my son and my daughter looking like the members of some biker gang. It's been a while. The pandemic has been hard on them, as you can tell. My son has greatly aged and I don't even know what happened to my daughter. We enjoy the face swapping and all the fun little things that you can do uh, with Facebook filters, but the reality is there's actually a darker side. That prior to the pandemic hitting, came across a study that had been done that was starting to evaluate and look at some broader cultural trends about what the the filters, whether Instagram, Snapchat, Facetune, or any of the other various apps Um, If you happen to be in China and you have a Chinese phone, it's actually built into the camera app itself. That there has become a whole new industry built around what face filters do to us. Social scientists have called it Snapchat dysmorphia. It's led to a boom in the plastic surgery world. They've actually had a record year last year with 16.5 billion with a B in revenue. That was that highest ever for that industry. And what they noticed, not just the dollar amount, but they were getting younger and younger clients coming in, holding up their phone saying, hey, make me look like this. Smooth my skin. Like, get rid of the bunny ears or the dog ears, but you notice what it's doing to my chin? Do you see what it's doing to my lips? Do you see what it did to my nose? Make me look like that. And that it's almost kind of the acceptable norm if you're in plastic surgery to have someone walk in and hold up a phone and say, make me look like that. Because internally, they're struggling with this disconnect, right? They look at their phone, and what they see on the phone coming back at them, in their mind, is the ideal. And yet, what they see in the mirror is the real. Because this filter has affected how they see reality. But, you know, the reality is, I think, that the tension between the ideal and the real, the, the push towards self-help, this is not a new thing. This is a human thing. The pursuit of perfection is actually baked in. It's at the heart of every single world religion. And at the heart of plastic filters and all the other face-swapping filters that exist on Instagram and Snapchat and Facetune and etc., that there's something in us that recognizes the disconnect between the way we want to be and the way we are. And how we choose to tackle that and solve that problem looks a lot of different ways with a lot of different people, but the reality is is that it's always been inside of us. And religious kind of filters, the primary religious filter throughout human history across almost every major religion, the, the filter is... To, to work harder and to, to live up and to do the right things and to check the right boxes and that if you do the right things and if you just have enough on the good side, then eventually what will happen is it kind of tips over and you hit that line of good enough that's enough for God. And I think that probably one of the most destructive, one of the most challenging filters that most people live with, even if they've never articulated it, is the religious filter. This filter is, how does God look at me? What does God think about me? Because how we think about God is really important. But I think many of us have an invisible operating system, this invisible 
filter underneath the surface that says, what does God look and think about me? And that's where the religious filter comes in and says, hey, we want to help you. If you do these things, you go through these rituals, you give this much, you go here this much, you pray these prayers, then you'll know when God looks at you, what he sees is good enough to be enough. And this was something that in the ancient world, as well as in modern age today, we struggle with. And Paul, who was someone who lived this life, this religious filter very well, um, actually ends up writing a letter where he chronicles a little bit of his struggle with this religious filter, where guilt had been his motivating force, where you live with this, am I enough, am I good enough to be enough? Because we all have this invisible standard. We all have this standard because we recognize that there needs to be some good enough for it to satisfy the justice that we all internally recognize in our world that needs to be present in our world. Right? When I have conversations with people who are wrestling through the religious filter, they're like, you know, I think if we're just good enough, that's enough for God. And normally what that means is that their good enough is the standard. Anything, anyone underneath them in their kind of moral pursuits and their kind of religious observance and their lifestyle and their generosity and their good deeds, whatever it is, well, anybody underneath them is probably not past the line. Or they draw the line somewhere further back to bring in their family But nobody, I've never met a single person who draws the line on the other side of Hitler. It says, oh, I'm sure Hitler's good. It's normally, most of us have some invisible kind of spectrum where it's like Mother Teresa and Hitler. And we hope the line is somewhere just beyond where we already are. And this is a powerful driving force. It shapes people's lives all around the world every single day. And Paul has lived this explicitly. He's seen what it's done to him, and he writes this letter to a church that's beginning to wrestle through the religious filter as they step into Christianity. And he writes these words that will seem a little, little strange to us in the 21st world. He says, if, any, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, the flesh would be uh, the religious filter. It's like if anyone else thinks they can be confident that they've checked all the boxes, if they've done all the right things, let me tell you, I should have that. I have more confidence than anyone I've ever met. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, not something you expected me to say today, but that was this religious ritual that a Jewish boy would experience eight days into his life. Paul's essentially saying, look, I'm so good at being good that even before I had a choice to be good, I was already good. My parents were so religiously committed to me that they were willing, in a world that did not practice this ritual, in a world that did not see this as a normal thing, on the eighth day, they put me through that. In a a day and age with pre-modern medicine and all that came with that, like, this is the house that I grew up in, religiously committed no matter what. And he says that, I was of the people of Israel, that I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so now he's not just looking at the family, he's looking at his pedigree. He's like, look, I grew up not just in a religious household, but I came from this pure-blooded Jewish family that was distinctly different. I was a Benjamite, right? I'm a member of this tribe. I was extra pure. Because the idea in the the Jewish scriptures that, that had kind of formed this religious filter of the day was that God had a special commitment to the Jewish people and that the more distinctly, purely Jewish you were, the better God saw you. So he's just bragging about his birthright. He's like, look, I'm of Hebrews 
in regards to the law, a Pharisee. Now again, not something that you've probably used this week or ever, but what he's saying is, okay, now let's talk about how I viewed the Jewish scriptures or the law. I was a Pharisee. I was a diligent, disciplined, driving, determined individual. Pharisees tended to be the the most intelligent, the most diligent. They were the Ivy League educated. A good Pharisee could recite all 613 statutes of the Jewish law by memory. A good, according to kind of Jewish um, mythology and this idea growing up, that a good Pharisee could take a scroll because um, in this day and age, they were still in the middle of transitioning to a book form. So most written literature at the time were scrolls in the first century world. And so a Pharisee could have a scroll handed to him. And let's say it's the scroll of Isaiah. They could take a nail. They could drive the nail through the scroll of Isaiah, which was in a Jewish book and what we call the Old Testament. And they could look at where the nail stopped kind of based on the depth of the nail. And a really good, qualified, educated Pharisee would say, oh, that looks like it stopped around chapter 20. And based on where it is in the scroll, this way to this way, it's probably stopping on the sentence. And some of them could even tell you the word because they'd memorized it so well that they could see the words on the page even without the scroll unfurled. I mean, it was amazing. And this is Paul. He's like, I'm a Pharisee. I am so well educated on the law. And then he says, as for zeal, you want to know how passionate? It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not just this understanding I have about the world. As for zeal, I persecuted the church because I saw them as a bunch of backwards, rebel, blaspheming, just distorted cult members. And I was cleaning house. I was taking care of the bad theology that had crept in. As for righteousness, based on the law, all those 613 things, I checked them all. I was faultless. Every single box I checked, I didn't miss a single one. That's who I am. He's saying, look, for you religious filter people who are wondering, are you good enough to be enough? And what is good enough to be enough? I am your answer. I got it. I checked them all. I did it all. I am it all. But then he throws this stark, surprising sentence. Because I don't think you and I understand the weightiness of the words. It would be like you meet someone you don't know, and in the course of a conversation, you find out that they're like, they have a thousand patents, they're a multi-billionaire, they've, you know, they've led all these organizations, they have all these degrees, you know, they've, they're like internationally known to rock a microphone, right? Like, they just got all these abilities, and you're like, oh my goodness, you're the most impressive individual I've never, ever met on planet Earth, right? Like, this is Paul. And so what they expect him to say next is not what he says next. He says, but whatever. He's like, whatever I just said, whatever I could add, because there's more. Because he's not even adding all the more. He just he, he, like, essentially studied under the brightest, one of the most famous Jewish scholars in human history. I mean, Paul, like, was a trilingual genius. He doesn't even get to that. He says, but whatever regains to me now, I consider a loss for the sake of Christ. He says, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He's saying, look, on the grand measuring scale, 
everything that you would put up there that you think is valuable, I consider worthless. And the reason why is because something has happened to me that changed everything about me. It's changed how I saw the world. I have a new filter. In fact, to make this point even stronger again, first century readers would have been like, you know how on albums they've got the like little explicit label to warn you what you might hear, right? For some of us growing up, like your parents wouldn't let you buy them. Or, you know, you had trouble finding an album because it, your like local store wouldn't sell it because it had that little like explicit label on it. There would have been an explicit label on this section because this is how stark, how strong Paul's words go. He doesn't just consider them worthless. He says, I consider them garbage. Now, garbage isn't the best way to translate that, but it's um, a little bit more an appropriate way to translate that because there could be children in the room. The, a little bit more accurate translation would be dung and refuse. Like, He's like, you know that stuff that comes out of you and me, the everybody poops book? He's like, that's what I consider this to be. I mean, it's not just like it's worthless. He's kind of taken it to a different level. He says, I consider them, why? Because I have a new way of viewing the world. I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's a radically different filter. And it's a filter that honestly, I don't even have time to fully unpack today. There are slides in this presentation that I hid before I got up here because we don't have time to go as deep as we could go in this passage. Because Paul is bringing the full weight of his religious filter. And what I don't want to do is distract you in all the different details of what he's processing through with his extraordinary amount of knowledge around the Jewish law and scriptures. Because the reality is that we can all relate to this central idea, this central tension of how good is good enough. How much? What do I have to do to make God see me, notice me, love me? How do I know when we talk about peace and joy that I can actually have that? Like some of the most anxious and some of the most um, brutal people I've ever met are religious people. Some of the most unkind, unforgiving people I've ever met are religious people. In pastor circles, when pastors get around, I don't have this problem, but when I get around them, what they talk about is the religious people. And I get to be like, I'm good. I've got the best people in the world that I get to pastor. But you would be horrified to hear the stories from pastors about dealing with religious people. Because the religious filter does something. It breeds a self-righteousness. It breeds a self-justification. It breeds a, a higher than you kind of, I look down on you. I condescend upon you because you don't see the world I, the way I see it. But Paul's filter had been replaced by Jesus. Jesus' filter. Jesus comes on the scene and he changes everything. People have an idea of what God is and who God is, and they're not really sure what God thinks about them. They, they hope they check all the boxes to kind of be on his good side because it matters. 
And then Jesus comes in the way he treats people that other people would have swore God doesn't like or God doesn't care about. Jesus comes and he loves them and he serves them. And so Paul's trying to convey to this church in Philippi that he writes this letter to that we call the book of Philippians. In chapter 3, he's like, look, I want you to understand there is a different filter that I have. Uh, there is a version of the Bible called The Message. It was written by a pastor, um, theologian named Eugene Peterson. He was a Canadian whose desire when he was pastoring was, I want to help the people I pastor understand the Bible better. And so he created a, essentially a paraphrased version where he would take sections of Scripture and he would kind of summarize it in modern day language. And he did this with chapter 3. He says, hey, the very credentials that these people are waving around as something special. I'm tearing them up, and I'm throwing it out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why am I doing this? I'm doing this because of Jesus. He's like, look, all the things that I used to think made me good in God's sight, I've gave up. Because I realized that the good enough is a bad filter. And I know that for many of us, we... When I have these conversations as, as, as a pastor and people are like, you know, where's your hope? You know, I have a weird job. Sometimes I'm in the room when people have a baby and sometimes I'm in the room like after they've had a baby. Not, that would be really awkward. So I'm going to be clear on that one. I, and then I'm in the room with people who have type of experiences. that, And so I have this like strange stark difference to the type of experiences that I have. And when people are about to die, some really good clarity comes to them if they have kind of the full kind of capacity to reflect. You know, they typically don't think about what they have. They don't typically think about the degrees they have or the money they have. They typically are reflecting on the relationships they did or did not or could or could not have had. That those things, the relational components and, and the spiritual things, become really important in the final moments. Because people are like, I'm about to take my last blink, and maybe I don't believe in God, but what if I'm wrong? I'm about to find out. And if I am wrong, it really matters what I'm about to step into. That's why for so many years I wrestled with different faiths. I've had in-depth conversations with faith leaders from almost every single faith system you can imagine. I lived in Thailand as a college student for a summer. I've, I've been to a Buddhist temple, I've sat down and had conversations with Buddhist monks, with imams. Like, for me, this was not a job profession. This was a pursuit of what's the most important. You see, I, I actually just happened to think out of kind of my scientific kind of frame that there's got to be more than what I see. And really good investment strategy is that you don't just invest for the now, you invest for the later. So what's the later? And that one of the things that stands out about Christianity is how unique and different its filter is. It's what Paul says. It's where all the other religious filters, if it has any semblance of a kind of a quantified, distilled version of a God who is looking and has concern and has any kind of attributes of justice, that there's this sense that like, well, how do I make sure that we're good? How do I make sure that I'm okay with him and he's okay with me or she's okay or it's okay 
or they're okay. And then Paul steps in and says, no, no, all the gods, all the religious filters, they, they have gods up high looking down below, watching the people try to jump with all their might, not knowing if the chasm they're jumping over, if they're going to clear it until it's too late. And he became like us. And that he, with the filter that he added, changed everything. And this is why Paul's transformation caused this huge shift. Right? He says, not that I've already obtained all this, not that I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's like, look, this is so important. I'm not there yet. Like, I, I haven't made it all the way. I haven't checked everything. Like, I am straining and I'm struggling. But he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenly in Christ Jesus. But in all of this, in all of this, he's not saying he's trying to be good enough for God. He's actually saying, I, I've had such a crazy experience that it has changed how I'm living my life. So let me take you to the good enough filter. We tend to operate as a default in that filter. Because it's a little bit more comforting. It's still way ambiguous. You're kind of placing a blind bet that I've checked enough boxes. I've had conversations with people from different religious systems. And typically I'll ask the question, like, why do you have confidence? Why are you, where is your hope when you die? And most of the answers is that, well, I've hoped I've lived a good enough life. I've hoped I've, you know, X, Y, and Z. I was this generous. I, I did these rituals. I went through this motions. I did all these things. I hope that's why I'm good. I hope that God kind of gives me a pass. That the entire world, like operating under that filter, essentially hopes that God grades on a curve and that they make the curve. Uh, essentially, they're really hoping God's a lot like a college class that's really hard. And yet, Paul's experience, I think, to frame it with a different illustration, was, I think, a little bit more helpful for us. So, the good enough thing, put that aside, and let me give you a new way of thinking that I think Paul started to realize. He uses the word garbage, so let me use that. How much toilet water would you be comfortable with being in a glass of water if you were going to drink it? Would it be like half would you be comfortable with a glass of water if half the water was toilet water? Maybe make you cringe just a little bit. How about, how about if you had a glass of water and it was only a tablespoon of toilet water? I don't mean Mr. Clean just been scrubbed toilet water. I mean, you know, the other kind. Tablespoon still like a little. How about a teaspoon? Half a teaspoon? How about just like a little like dropper? One or two drops. See, I imagine that you, like me, you're not comfortable with any toilet water in your clean water. And see, I think we innately, intuitively understand that when it comes to clean purity, when it comes to that, that any amount of impurity taints a whole bunch of purity. And that that's actually the proper way of thinking about that moment when we stand before God. Because the good enough is a setup for failure. 
Because a good enough is saying, well, I'll just keep adding water to the toilet water that's already there. And I'll, another gallon, another gallon, but none of us are okay with watered-down toilet water. And if we, with our sense of justice, recognize that justice has to be done. I just saw recently where um, a 93-year-old man was prosecuted for his Nazi crimes. Now, realistically, he was connected to over 5,000. He was complicit in over 5,000 deaths in the camp that he oversaw. His like five years left, if he has that, doesn't at any point come to anywhere close to the justice that we would all acknowledge he deserves. Right? We don't even have a box. We know there should be justice because a 93-year-old man was found guilty for the things and the crimes that he did back in the 40s. And yet, simultaneously, with all that desire for justice, we live with the tension of recognizing that there can't be justice fully done on earth. And the reason we can cling to justice is that we, I think, recognize there has to be something, there has to be a bigger standard for justice. If not, then Hitler committing suicide in his bunker, that was the greatest tragedy of them all because we couldn't even hold him accountable for the one-third of the Jewish population he eradicated with his policies and practices. And I think that when you mix all that together, this way of seeing the world that Paul began to struggle with when he met Jesus that day, crystallized, that he realized there's not enough watering down that I can do the toilet water to make it pure. So the 613 statues live every single day, that doesn't fix it. And so what he experiences that's different is grace. That, I think, is the one filter that changes everything. It changes how you see you. It changes how I see me. But even more importantly, it changes how we see God seeing us. Because if we don't have a grace filter, then we're always going to wonder, what does God think about me? Is he mad at me? Is, and I've heard this from people's mouths, and I'm, I'm, my heart breaks. They're like, I probably lost that baby because of what I did. I probably didn't get that job because of that thing I did back then. That some of us live with a crushing weight of guilt and shame. And there's not enough good things that can be. Alfred Nobel tries to make up for what he fears was his greatest legacy, which was try, well, TNT, right? He creates this devastating, technologically advancing piece of warfare that leads to the death of thousands of people. And he's so overwhelmed by what his legacy will be that Nobel goes and creates this thing that we call the Nobel Prize with this seed money and this foundation. Why does he do that? Because he's trying to overcome all the bad that he fears his life carries with it. And that many of us, without ever bringing it up, because it would be way too awkward or we don't have that kind of relationship with other people, we, we wear the guilt and the shame over us. We wear it in the way that we were treated or the things that we did when we were younger. Some of you, as grandparents, you feel guilt and shame because of the way you parented, and it affects how you parent and grandparent today. 
that guilt and shame is a lot like that Instagram filter where you, you sense, man, I know there's an ideal, but this is the real. And the religious filter does not bring freedom. It just brings reminders of condemnation and a constant nagging sense of, is it enough? And then there's Jesus who comes in and says, with the full justice of God, there is no impurity allowed in my presence. There is no amount of good enough that is enough because of what is already there. That brokenness that theologians called sin that's inside of you and me, the justice of God says has to be satisfied and then the mercy and the love of God satisfies it by taking the punishment himself. That is what the cross is. The cross is God saying in heaven, justice must be done on earth and then God stepping onto earth so that justice can be done to him. It's a profound thing. It's like you're a kid, but it's at a cosmic level that it's hard to wrap our minds around. That is the transformative filter that Paul was wanting to bring to us. And I think it really does shape everything. So let me give you an illustration. If you've been through the 112, this is a reminder to you. Because this, I think, is one of the most helpful visuals around what the filter of grace does inside of you and me. Uh, our family were on a trip one time, and we were driving towards the mountains. And uh, we were really excited because it was a mountain drive that was considered one of the most um, beautiful mountain drives in America. And I really love mountains. It's kind of this thing for me. And so we, we turned on the road that I knew t- took us into the mountain pass. And I looked down at my GPS, and we have a solid hour of driving But I'm like, hey, family, because I'm the really obvious person who loves to point out things that it's kind of this running joke. We ride by like TripAdvisor up the road, the world headquarters. I'm like, hey, there's TripAdvisor's world headquarters. Or you start, hey, there's Reebok's world headquarters. Or hey, there's the world headquarters of Dunkin' Donuts. Like I'm like the obvious person who just gets so excited on trips that I just want to point out all the things I see. Right? Oh, look, there's that stadium for that team, right? And, and they're like, oh, okay, you've told us this like three times because we've ridden by it like three times. And every time I say it. And so I'm like, hey, guys, we're on the road. We're there. There's the mountains. And it's like, we see the mountains, Dad. Like, oh, my goodness. And Jenny's like, yep, there's the mountains. Got it. Right there. Can't miss them. And we drive for a solid hour, and we're still not in them. And I'm getting more and more excited because what I see is this grand mountain. In fact, when we get to its base and we start the 7,000-foot climb up the road, it becomes this massive mountain range that is glorious and beautiful. And that, for me, when I think about grace, when I think about the cross, this is the experience I think we're meant to have. So let me illustrate it with this little video I made. August 7th, 2001, I became a Christian. I recognized sin, and I recognized grace and love, and, but the sin at the time was all the illegal big things I'd ever done. Shortly after that, as I'm growing in my faith, like the sin in my life is no longer the, the big illegal things I've done. It's the little things that I've done that's wrong. And the grace and the love seems to still cover those things. And then later on, I'm learning and I'm growing in my faith, and I realize actually what sin really is is Not just the external things I've done, it's the thoughts that I've had that are wrong. And yet grace is bigger and his love is even greater still. 
And that now, in this current frame of where I live, that what I've realized even now is that while sin isn't just the bad things I've done, it's the good things I haven't done, the love I didn't give. It's even bigger than it's ever been. And yet, in the midst of that, grace and love is even greater now than it was August 7th, 2001. That my life... As I've walked out the Christian faith, sin, my, my awareness of it, my ability to understand what it is, it has grown. And what's grown simultaneously is my view of grace and my view of love. I mean, August 7th, 2001, I was like, well, I broke this law and I broke this statute and I did this. And then, you know, here I'm confessing. I'm like, you know, I realized I cheated on that test last week. I don't think that was probably okay. I never felt bad for cheating on the test. But now I realize, holy crap, I think that was wrong. And then it's like, over here, oh, I just had that thought about that person. Oh, my goodness, I've never thought that that thought about that person was actually a bad thing. But, you know, I guess I probably shouldn't have tried to kill them in my head or I shouldn't have probably objectified them in my head. Maybe that's sin too. Now, all of that was here all along, but it was like the mountain drive. As I drove towards the mountains, what became one was really many, and it was glorious. And the closer I got, the more I saw. What was invisible from far away is now a mountain ridge that, sticks, that kind of sticks out and has its contours and texture. And grace is amazing. Grace is rich. Grace is full. Grace is bigger than the sin in my life. And I know that as I keep living, if I keep pursuing and I keep doing what Paul's saying where I'm pressing on, not to, to get grace because I already have grace. He's talking about growing in his awareness, growing in his understanding. That's why at the end of that verse in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, if this is, what, this is how you should think if you're mature. And if you haven't yet realized this, I pray that you would ask God to help you see it as you look into it. That as I keep living my life, this screen would have to get bigger because the, the cross is going to keep growing in my life. Because there are, there are sins, there are things, there are pieces and particles of that toilet water present in me that I don't see yet. Now, the pandemic helped me find some new ones. But I'm glad for grace. Uh, an eight-year-old who has flashes of being a 13-year-old helps me find some new. But there's grace. The pressure and the anxiety of a pandemic help me discover some new pieces. But there's grace. His love for me has never changed. In fact, my awareness of it has only grown. And it changes how I see and live and do. It's the filter that shapes everything that I see. And my challenge to you in this season is to embrace grace, no matter where you are. Embrace grace. If you've never stepped into that grace filter, you've lived under the religious filter of how good is good enough, how much is good enough, that you would embrace the reality that there is no good that's good enough. But God is enough for your good. And that for some of us, that may mean you click on Exploring Faith in our app or that you email me, chris at encounterchurch.com, right? And we have a conversation around faith. Maybe it's that you kind of physically take that step, that you accept that gift that is called grace. And maybe 
baptism is your next step. Whether you click on the app or you let us know, we would love to walk that journey. For those who live under that grace filter, I want to encourage you with this verse. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10, and this is honestly one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Man, like I think about that. This is no joke. I would not be alive today were it not for Jesus. The darkness inside of me, the weight and the gravity of guilt and shame and depression would have killed me. And I know that. No, no like false sense of like, ah, no. I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for Jesus. But that's not why I'm a Christian. It's just an, a beneficial outcome. I'm a Christian because the God of the universe stepped into earth to satisfy a, a, a bill and a statement that I could never satisfy on my own. And that because of him, I am what I am. I am what I am. I'm filled with imperfection while simultaneously being perfected. I'm his. I'm his son. I've been forgiven. I've been set free. Like, that's who I am. And there are some days where who I am doesn't reflect and doesn't kind of project into how I live my life. But every day, that cross keeps getting bigger. Because by the grace, his grace to me, the striving inside of me, because you could easily say, well, I got grace. I can do whatever I want. It's like, no, no, no. You don't understand grace. If you think you got grace, you can do whatever you want. You don't have grace. You've got some cheap version of it. Because what real grace does, when you see the love, you see the sacrifice, when you grow in your appreciation of what he did so that you could have life, so that you could have freedom, when you stand with that glorious realization, it changes how you see things. You're like, oh my, I didn't know all that you did for me and all that you covered me with. See, he says that grace was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. The thing that keeps me moving, the thing that keeps me pressing, the reason I work as hard as I do, the reason I'm willing to keep striving and suffering, the reason Paul can write with boldness all the things that he went through so in order that people may know his love and grace that God has for them, the reason you do all those things, he's like, the reason I kept working harder and I kept striving harder is because, oh my goodness, did you not see the grace that he's given me? Did you not see the love that I, he has for me? That there is nothing I can do to separate me from him? Like, oh my goodness, this is the most amazing, incredible, like awesome news ever. Of course I work harder. Of course I strive. Because that's what grace does. I don't work in love to get love or to be good enough. I do it because God is enough. And it makes me want to love more. It makes me want to serve more. It makes me want to break out of the prison that I live in called selfishness, guilt, and shame. And so as we wrap up today, as we close out with a song, I want to challenge you. Embrace grace. It's the only filter, the only filter that truly sets you free. It's the only filter that doesn't just acknowledge the gap between the ideal and the real, but gives you a bridge to go beyond it. 
It's the one that allows you to wake up in the morning with peace and joy that's bigger than your circumstances, that's bigger than the challenges you're walking through. And so if you are already taken that step of faith and you're following Jesus, go further down the mountain trail. There's more. And if you've never taken that step, then today could be that day. Why wait? If you're not sure you're ready, at least look into it. Because I'm telling you, there is actually a path. There is actually a way where you can be feel free and, and released from the guilt and the shame that's plagued you your entire life. And not only that, there's an exchange where you've actually been giving something new. Paul frequently likes to go back and say that, you know, I was this and I was this, but now I'm not anymore. That God's given us a new identity and that exchange of grace. And the song that we're going to close out with today is a song called Come to the Altar. And it's just a really fresh reminder that if you're hurting, you're broken, you, you feel the weight of sin, you feel the weight of regrets, you feel the weight of guilt and shame, that there is a place where all of that can be exchanged, where all of that can be turned, where chains can be broken, where hope can flow, where life can come into where there was death. It's in our foundness, being found in His grace, that we have our foundation for hope, for joy, for peace, 